The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. greeting to you on behalf of my wife Rhonda and myself, as well as on behalf of Westminster Theological Seminary. Uh, Rhonda and I are delighted to be able to be back with the Westminster Presbyterian family this Lord's Day and the next, Lord willing. And uh, just to hear uh, your choir, both ends of the spectrum, sing this morning. Uh, what, what a great ministry and a great blessing. As I listen to the children sing, is. Uh, grandfather of, I think last time we were with you was four, now it's five. Um, as, uh, we just look and they show up somewhere else, there's, there's, there's more of them arriving. Uh, we are just delighted when we hear the children who are being nurtured in the Lord uh, give praise to the Lord. And so we're thankful for you and your ministry and trust that in the next couple of weeks together we'll be able to exalt the Lord together as we look at His Word. So I'd invite you to do that. If you have your copy of the Scriptures, would you please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we will consider in some depth this morning just verse 1, but I would like to read in your hearing the Word of God as we find it in Romans 5, 1 to 5. Please listen. This is the Word of God. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us this hour where we can engage in divine worship, where you have spoken to us, we have responded to you through song and prayer, and now you are speaking to us through your word. We have asked that we might be able to turn our eyes upon Jesus. And we pray that from by your spirit working through your word, you would help each and every one here today to do that. Lord, pray for all of the saints, those who by grace are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that the love of God that has been shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit would give sweet and strong assurance of our standing before You. And then, Lord, if there would be one uh, present here or within the sound of this sermon that has not yet believed in Jesus, would You, through the preaching of Your Word, by Your Spirit, give that gift of sovereign grace, faith in the Lord Jesus. Above all, we pray that for your glorious grace, you would be exalted in our hearts in the next 
few moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In describing the Scriptures, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, Every verse is a precious jewel. He then went on to say that not every jewel is fitting for every occasion. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 might be the exception to that rule. Martin Luther said of Romans chapter 5, In the whole Bible, there's hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. Romans 5.1 is the kind of verse that if you're ever imprisoned and forbidden your Bible, you want to have emblazoned on your memory bank in your heart. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine, if you would, with me, a very grave courtroom scene. The judge, robed in black, respected throughout the nation, sits behind his bench looking down at the accused. The accused is a person that the whole courtroom and the whole world that's watching the trial on CNN knows to be guilty of a heinous crime. It's time for the verdict. The judge lifts his gavel and brings it down on the bench. Innocent. The judge then gets up, comes down to the speechless person who has just been acquitted. The judge takes off his own robe, puts it on them, puts his arm around them and says, now why don't you come home with me and live with me and we'll get to know and enjoy each other. Well, that's a shallow attempt to picture the cosmos-stunning reality revealed to us in this life-anchoring passage. If I were to put the majestic realities of this one verse in one sentence, it would sound like this. Since God has judged us righteous in Christ, we can stand before God and enjoy our fellowship and friendship with Him. Since God has judged us righteous in Christ, we can stand before God and enjoy our fellowship and friendship with God. Now, the first stunning observation of this one verse is this, that we have friendship with God. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of making the acquaintance of an older woman who, through the providence of God and how God had blessed her, came to a place where she had what we would qualify as extreme wealth. We were in a context where her husband was speaking, and because of the way he carried himself and the way that he spoke, I made comment to this woman that he reminded me of a former president of the United States. I said, he reminds me of President Ronald Reagan. And she turned to me and she said, well, you know, we were friends with Ron and Nancy. Ron and Nancy. (laughs) We sometimes spent Christmas at the White House, friends with the President of the United States. What an incredible privilege. What incredible access. And that actually pales by comparison, cosmic comparison, to what we're given in this verse Right at the forefront of what God wants us to know through the inspired writer in this passage is that we have peace with God. 
The immensity of this, the intimacy of this is absolutely staggering. This means that with the being who from himself spoke all things into existence, the one who governs the course of every atom, the one who governs the history of every nanosecond, the one who is himself righteousness personified, it means that we are favored friends. That's what it means to have peace with God. Well, perhaps that doesn't seem quite as staggering to us as the Scriptures would have it. You see, if we come to this with the cultural spirituality, this might not seem terribly dramatic to us. The spirituality of our culture says that God is friendly to anyone anyway. Peace with God is a right that every human being has simply by being human. While people might not be aware of God's friendship, once they're enlightened to it, it shouldn't shock us that much because God has been happy with everyone all along anyway. Well, if you hold to that cultural conviction, you might miss the staggeringly good news that this is. Here's another way to lose the awe of this. By coming to it with the convictions of religious spirituality. The idea that people achieve peace with God because they've done all the stuff that really religious people are supposed to do. They do the church thing. They avoid the really scandalous sins and do good things for those who are less advantaged than them. If you're banking on your religious behavior, you miss how indescribably undeserved fellowship and friendship with God is. John Calvin described it this way. When we consider who we are and examine what is in us, not one of us can find one particle of righteousness in himself. But on the contrary, we're full of sins and iniquities so much so that no other party is required to accuse us than our own conscience. Professor John Murray said this, the greatest enemy of the gospel is not human unrighteousness. It's human righteousness. You see, we might be dulled to the staggering riches of God's grace disclosed in this passage because we actually think of ourselves as humans as righteous enough to deserve relationship with God. And that can be a particular temptation when the culture around us becomes more and more unchristian. It's easy to look at the, the, the decline and the decay of the neighborhood and say, well, I'm better than that. Surely God has to be on my side because I do better than they do. To apprehend the staggering nature of this, we have to understand that the peace with God comes because of a therefore. It's the consequence of what has gone before this verse. Things like this in the earlier chapters of Romans. Romans chapter 1, listen. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the unrighteousness of men. And then at the end of chapter 1, the inspired writer identifies the kind of unrighteousness that brings God's wrath. You ready for the list? Envy, murder, strife, deceit maliciousness, gossip, slander, pride, boastfulness, disobedience to parents, foolishness, ruthlessness. 
They're hardly the kind of scandalous sins that catch the headlines in the church foyer, are they? But what the Holy Spirit has said in, this, in, in Romans 1 is that if we have done or do any of those things, the wrath of God is against us. And just in case we deceive ourselves that any of us have come through the list guiltless, in chapter 3 it says this, none is righteous, not, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's Romans chapter 3. That's the verdict of God. No one is righteous and avoids the wrath of God just because they're human. No one is righteous and avoids the wrath of God because they do enough religious stuff. So if I could say this respectfully, if we're not stunned by the reality of having peace with God, we're missing it at some level. Either your conscience is deafened by the narrative that's been played by the culture, or our conscience has been inoculated by the endless religious activity we trust in. The believers can and do have peace with God is a stunning reality that should produce great joy. That's where he goes later in the passage. Because it means that we are no longer the objects of the displeasure of Almighty God. It means we no longer live under the anger of the all-powerful God. It means we are no longer the enemies of the all-righteous God. Instead, that we have peace with God means that we are in His favor. And that we have His friendship. It means that His face shines on us, says number 6. It means that He rejoices over us, says Zechariah 3. He enjoys relationship with us. We are His friend. You simply could not write more stunning, more comforting, more joy-inducing words than peace with God. The second stunning observation is this, that we have been justified by God. We've been justified by God. The story is told of an ancient tribe whose chief was known for two qualities, justice and mercy. And the great offense in that tribe was to take somebody else's property. And so the great punishment for taking somebody else's property is that you would be flogged at the flogging pole till you died. There was a season when things started to go missing amongst the tribe and they started to look for the thief. And finally, the tribal chief was told they found the thief, and he went to the center of the tribal compound and took his seat as they worked through the crowd with this thief to be exposed to him so that he could render the judgment. And as the thief came through the crowd, he looked into the eyes of his aged mother. She was the thief. The crowd began to murmur, well, what, what, what's he going to do? He surely can't execute judgment because he would not be merciful. And others began to murmur, well, if he relieves her of of this crime, he's certainly not just. And the crowd murmured. The judge finally stood up and said, take her to the flogging post. The crowd continued to murmur, well, he's just, yeah, but he's not merciful. 
As they took his mother to the flogging post and prepared to flog this aged woman to death, the judge stood up and said, Stop! And the crowd breathed a sigh of relief and said, Well, he's merciful. And others said, Yeah, but he's not just. Then the judge, the, the tribal chief, came to the flogging post, took off his own robes, wrapped his arms around his aged mother, looked at the man with the whip and said, Proceed. As he would endure the punishment for his mother. A great exchange. Well, that's another shallow attempt to picture the great exchange that is assumed in the words of this verse, chapter 5, verse 1. The great exchange has taken place so that God has acquitted us of all our unrighteousness and accepted us as righteous. Sometimes when we read that Bible word, justified, to help us remember how good it is, we say it means this, just as if we'd never sinned. And that's true, and it's wonderful, but it's only part of the truth. It means not only that He has pardoned us from breaking His law, but that He has positively given us the standing where He judges us to have measured up to His standard of righteousness. To be justified is not just that God does not hold our sins against us, but that He has that He has acquitted us, but it actually means He accepts us as perfectly obedient to His will. He accepts us as righteous. That's how He can be at peace with us and be our friend because He considers us, He counts us righteous. To have been justified means, justified means God has declared the verdict about you and before you to His own court of law and the cosmos. Justified. Now as soon as we say that, our conscience goes, no, I know what I've done. I looked in the mirror and I can tell just how much I thought this week and what I said and the things that were going on in my mind as I came through those doors this morning. How could God judge me righteous and still be a righteous God? Because of the great exchange. Because His verdict is not based on what you did or what you do or anything that you will do from here to eternity. How can God be just and judge a person like me who is full of unrighteousness to be righteous? By giving them the perfect righteousness of another. That's the great exchange. That's what's loaded into the last utterly life-transforming clause in the verse. Do you see it? It is all through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to unpack that little statement, you have to read the chapters that went before this, and you have to read the rest of chapter 5. I'm not going to do that for you. I commend it to you as an incredibly edifying exercise. But here's what these chapters tell us. This is what it means through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has revealed His righteousness through His Son, Jesus. Christ, who not only did not break God's law, but perfectly obeyed God's law. In the great exchange, God has counted our unrighteousness to Christ 
and judged it in His cross. And God has counted the obedient righteousness of Jesus to sinners to make them righteous in His sight. God imputes, He accounts, He credits Jesus' righteousness to believers so that it is a just and true verdict when He declares righteous. Because we stand before Him dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to have been justified. God has acquitted us of our sin and He has accepted us as righteous not because of any righteousness in us or by us, but solely because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ legally imputed to us by God. That's why he has, He's at peace with us. It's impossible to overstate the life-transforming impact of this. For one, when you have been justified, it means your conscience can and should be at peace. See, this passage is not talking about the peace we feel with God, but the peace we actually have with God, whether we feel it or not. But feeling at peace with God can and should be a primary consequence in our life. It's not uncommon, you might know, for people who've actually been at war to still feel the risk, to still feel on edge, even when the hostilities are ended. We know this as an aspect of PTS that many military service people come home with post-traumatic stress. Far too often Christians live PTS spiritual lives, not knowing or maybe not believing that you, get this, need not fear the wrath of God. There is, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because by God's irrevocable legal declaration and act, the righteousness of Christ is now yours. Resting in that frees you to stand before God and feel peace with God and to enjoy fellowship and friendship with God that He redeemed you for. There's another life-transforming consequence of knowing that you are objectively, irrevocably, legally acquitted and accepted by God. Peace and freedom when you encounter the unjust disapproval of others. Either through what they do to you or what they say to you. If I know that God approves of me, what does it matter that others make unjust judgments about me? This is one of the ways he makes the argument. He applies the argument in Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? If the only righteous judge of all of history in the entire universe has declared you and receives you as righteous, who is there to tell you you don't measure up? That's particularly profound if you live in a web of religious relationships with people who have all sorts of extra-biblical standards that they judge everybody else by. Or if the community and the time in which you live is shame-based and people are motivated and manipulated by shame. To know that God accepts you and relates to you as righteous in Jesus can liberate us from the slavery of the false judgments that others place upon us. 
The second thing, the second stunning observation that we have to make is we have been justified by God. Now, all of that is such gloriously good news that it would be cruel if we didn't finally observe that we are justified only by... Please hear me clearly. God does not impute the righteousness of Christ to everyone. God does not declare everyone acquitted of their sins and accepted as righteous. We receive the righteousness of Christ and God's favorable verdict only by faith. That's what it says in verse 1. Since we have been justified, notice, by faith. Faith alone is the instrument by which we receive the blessing of justification by God. Again, this is the therefore passage, and it's assuming some things that went earlier. For example, and I'd like to read this to you, chapter 3, verses 21 to 28 are assumed in the therefore. Listen carefully, please. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested, chapter 3, 21, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No. No. But by a law, the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Listen. That means that God does not justify you because you do good things, even the good things that are in the Bible. God justifies us in Christ only through our believing in Christ. Now that sounds way too easy, way too good to be true. But it is true because God says it's true. And that's how God has chosen to bring glory to Himself by providing peace with God. He gives us all of this in Christ alone, declares all of that about us in Christ alone, through faith alone. Now, sometimes we bring a bunch of baggage to this word faith, and it prevents us from receiving what God has promised if we simply believe. So please understand this. Faith is not the one good deed that you do to get justified. As though God did everything else by grace and you add faith to the equation. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that even the faith to receive the grace of God is a gift of grace. Nor is this faith just belief in belief. It's not, as the culture would put it, being a person of faith it's not just having faith in faith it's having faith 
in Jesus Christ. Nor is faith just believing that the facts about Jesus are true. Nor is it even just agreeing with the facts about Jesus. It's knowing that it's true. It's agreeing that it's true. And then grasping Him for me from my heart. He died for me. He, I need His forgiveness. I need peace with God through Him. I trust Him. God justifies us by His grace alone. In Christ alone. By faith alone. So would you let me ask you today? Do you have peace with God? Do you know that, you're, that you are friends with God through Christ Jesus? Have you been justified by faith? It could be that you're just visiting church for the first time today. It's fall, time to turn a new leaf, get a new thing started with the children. Church seemed like a good idea. Friend, if that's you, we're really glad you came today. And if you choose never to come back, this is the most important question that you will ever have to answer because it will determine your eternity. On whose righteousness will you stand before God when He judges? Will it be yours or the righteousness of Jesus Christ? There's only one righteousness that's going to stand before the all-righteous God. So today... If you've never turned to Jesus, if you've never believed in Jesus, if you've never trusted Him, today's the day. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and He won't disappoint you. But what if this is your thousandth time in church? What if this is kind of easy for you to do? You know, God doesn't declare you to be righteous because your parents believe in Jesus, or because your friends believe in Jesus. Or because your church preaches Jesus. Have you believed from your heart in Jesus Christ? What if it's your 10,000th time in church? You know, just being able to keep up the religious routine and as Alistair Begg puts it, all in our places, the bright shiny faces on a Sunday morning doesn't make you righteous. Have you believed in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what a difference this makes. A couple of years ago, I was sitting on the bedside of a man that I know very well who had just been told by his physician that he probably wasn't going to leave the hospital. This was, he was probably going to decline and and this was it. And the reason he was in the physical condition he was in was because of the lifestyle he had lived before he believed in Jesus Christ. He had devastated his body through the lifestyle that he had lived. And as he sat there and he got that prognosis from the physician, he began in his mind to go over his sins. And he leaned back and his eyes rolled back in his head and he said, this is all my fault. I've done this to myself. Oh, what have I done? I've done this all wrong. And because I knew him as well as I did, I leaned forward and I said, as pastorally as I could, don't you dare. You do not sit here and do penance on your deathbed. You have clung to Jesus Christ by faith and He is your righteousness before God. You rest and rejoice in the righteousness of God. Friends, 
This one little verse makes all the difference in life. It makes all the difference in eternity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a glorious gospel to be able to announce. What a glorious gospel to hear. But Lord, unless you move by your Spirit and change hearts, we will be blind and deaf and unresponsive. And so, oh God, you who sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to live the perfectly obedient life, to die the sacrificial substitutionary death, and who you raised from the dead, who now rules from your right hand. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, give life to the dead? And anybody who does not believe, who's heard your word this day, would you bring them to life? And then, Lord, for your children, those who perhaps many years ago have tasted grace and believed, would you forgive us where we trust our own righteousness even one shred? where we fail to look to Christ and rejoice in His righteousness for us. And Lord, we pray that You would so work in us by Your Spirit that we would give You glory by rejoicing in the peace that we have with God. Oh Lord, we thank You that by Your grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, You have made us Your friends and that we will have fellowship with You forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.